0: section fourteen of lives of the queens of england volume six by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain elizabeth chapter four part five while elizabeth kept court at her natal palace of greenwich she on st george's day celebrated the national festival with great pomp as the sovereign of the order of the garter combining, according to the custom of the good old times, a religious service with the picturesque ordinances of this chivalric institution. All Her Majesty's chapel came through the hall in copes to the number of thirty, singing, O God, the Father of Heaven, etc., the outward court to the gate being strewed with green rushes. After came Mr. Garter, and Mr. Norroy, and Master Dean of the chapel, in robes of crimson satin with a red cross of st george and after eleven knights of the garter in their robes then came the queen the sovereign of the order in her robes and all the guard following in their rich coats to the chapel after service they returned through the hall to her grace's great chamber the queen and the lords then went to dinner where she was most nobly served and the lords sitting on one side were served on gold and silver after dinner were two new knights elected namely the earl of shrewsbury and lord hunsdon on the tenth of july the queen came by water to the tower to visit her mints where she coined certain pieces of gold with her own hand and gave them away to those about her catherine parr's brother the marquis of northampton and her own cousin lord hunsdon each received one of these memorable pieces about five she went out at the iron gate and over tower hill in great state on horseback with trumpeters and her gentlemen pensioners heralds sergeant-at-arms gentlemen and nobles preceding her lord Hunston bearing the sword of state before her majesty and the ladies riding after her in this order the maiden monarch and her train proceeded by the way of aldgate down Houndsditch and hog lane places little accustomed now to behold royal equestrian processions with gorgeous dames and courtly gallants sweeping in jewelled pomp through those narrow dusky streets but elizabeth whose maternal progenitors had handled the mercer's yard and wielded the civic mace was peculiarly the queen of the city of london where she was always hailed with enthusiastic affection as long as the tower was a royal residence our sovereigns did not entirely confine the sunshine of their presence to the western quarter of the metropolis, but gave the city, in turn, a share of the glories of regality. Elizabeth and her train, on the above occasion, proceeded, we are told, through the fields to the charter house, the splendid residence of the Lord North, where she reposed herself till the 14th, when Burley has noted in his diary the following entry the queen supped at my house in strand the savoy before it was finished and she came by the fields from christ church here her council waited on her grace with many lords knights and ladies great cheer was made till midnight when she rode back to the charter house where she lay that night the next day elizabeth set forth on her summer progress into essex and suffolk all the streets of the city through which she was to pass were freshly sanded and gravelled and the houses hung with cloth of arras rich carpets and silk but cheapside then proverbially called the golden cheap made a display of magnificence in honour of the passage of the sovereign which we should vainly look for in these days of flimsy luxury being hung with cloth of gold and silver and velvets of all colours all the crafts of london were ranged in their liveries from st michael the quern as far as aldgate the aldermen, in their scarlet robes, had a distinguished place in the royal procession, nearer to her majesty's person than her nobles and officers of state, save my lord Hunsdon, who bore the sword of state before her, and was immediately preceded by the lord mayor, who bore the sceptre. At Whitechapel, the lord mayor and aldermen took their leave of her grace, and she proceeded on her way towards Essex, and is supposed to have lodged that night at Wainstead House in the forest. On the 19th of July, Elizabeth reached Ingatestone, the seat of Sir William Petrie, one of her secretaries and privy councillors. She had had the wisdom, as well as the magnanimity, to overlook his former inimical proceedings in the time of her adversity, regarding them probably as political rather than personal offences. She remained at his house two days, and then passed on to Whitehall, one of the seats of her maternal grandfather, Sir Thomas Boleyn, where henry the eighth had ofttimes visited and wooed her fair ill-fated mother during the fervour of his passion over the portal the words viva elizabetha and a complimentary italian quatrain still bear record of her visit she visited colchester during this progress and arrived at harwich august second where she enjoyed the sea breezes for several days and was so well pleased with the entertainment she received that she inquired of the mayor and corporation if she could do anything for them they returned humble thanks to her majesty but said they did not require anything at that time when the queen departed she looked back at harwich with a smile and said a pretty town and wants nothing her majesty arrived at ipswich august sixth the inhabitants of which like the other towns through which she passed had been assessed for the expenses of her entertainment she found great fault with the clergy for not wearing the surplice and the general want of order observed in the celebration of divine service the bishop of norwich himself came in for a share of the censure of the royal governess of the church for his remissness and for winking at schismatics above all she expressed her dislike of the marriage of the clergy and that in cathedrals and colleges there were so many wives and children which she said was contrary to the intention of the founders and much tending to the interruption of the studies of those who were placed there she even proceeded to issue an order on the ninth of august addressed to the archbishop of canterbury for his province and to the archbishop of york for his forbidding the resort of women to the lodgings of cathedrals or colleges on any pretence her indignation at the marriage of her bishops carried her almost beyond the bounds of delicacy and when archbishop parker remonstrated with her on what he called the popish tendency of a prohibition which was peculiarly offensive to him as a married man she told him she repented of having made any married bishops and even spoke with contempt of the institution of matrimony altogether it is well known that the first time the queen honoured the Archiepiscopal palace with a visit on which occasion an enormous expense and immense trouble and fatigue had been incurred by the primate and his wife instead of the gracious words of acknowledgment which the latter naturally expected to receive at parting from the royal guest her majesty repaid her dutiful attention with the following insult and you said she madam i may not call you mistress i am ashamed to call you and so i know not what to call you but howsoever I thank you. Elizabeth looked as sourly on Bishop's daughters as she did on their wives, and having heard that Pilkington, Bishop of Durham, had given his daughter in marriage a fortune of ten thousand pounds, equal to the portion bequeathed by her father, Henry the Eighth to her and to her sister, she scorched the see of Durham of a thousand a year, and devoted the money to her garrison at Berwick during her majesty's sojourn at ipswich the court was thrown into the greatest consternation by the discovery that the lady Catherine grey sister to the unfortunate lady jane was on the point of becoming a mother having contracted a clandestine marriage with edward earl of hertford the eldest son of the late protector somerset the matter was the more serious because the young lady was not only of the blood royal but as the eldest surviving daughter of francis brandon to whose posterity the regal succession stood entailed by the will of henry the eighth regarded by the party opposed to the hereditary claim of mary queen of scots as the heiress presumptive to the throne lady Catherine held an office in the queen's chamber which kept her in constant attendance on her majesty's person but having listened to the secret addresses of the man of her heart love inspired her with ingenuity to elude the watchfulness of the court one day excusing herself under pretence of sickness from attending her royal mistress to the chase she employed the time not like her accomplished sister the unfortunate lady jane grey in reading plato but in hastening with lady jane seymour one of the maids of honour the sister of her lover to his house where lady jane seymour herself procured the priest who joined their hands in marriage hertford left england the next day lady jane seymour died in the following march and thus poor lady katharine was left to meet the consequences of her stolen nuptials the queen forgetful of her own love passages when princess with the late lord admiral uncle to this very hertford and the disgraceful disclosures which had been made in king edward's privy council scarce ten years ago treated the unfortunate couple with the greatest severity her premier cecil whose cold heart appears at all times inaccessible to the tender impulses of sympathy for beauty and distress, in a letter to the Earl of Sussex, sums up the leading circumstances, as far as they had then proceeded, in this piteous romance of royal history, in the following laconic terms. The tenth of this, at Ipswich, was a great mishap discovered. After naming the situation of the unfortunate Lady Catherine in the coarsest language, he adds, as she saith by the earl of hertford who is in france she is committed to the tower he is sent for she saith that she was married to him secretly before christmas last the reader will remember that the father of the husband of lady Catherine grey was the first great patron of this climbing statesman and herself the sister of the illustrious victim whom he had acknowledged as his sovereign the queen's majesty pursues he doth well thank be god although not well quieted with the mishap of the lady katharine it was in vain that the unfortunate sister of lady jane grey in her terror and distress fled to the chamber of the brother of lord guildford dudley lord robert and implored him to use his powerful intercession with their royal mistress in her behalf the politic courtier cared not to remind the queen of his family connection with those who had endeavoured to supplant her in the royal succession and lady catherine was hurried to the tower where she brought forth a fair young son her husband on his return was also incarcerated in the tower they were in separate prison lodgings but he found means to visit his wedded love in her affliction she became the mother of another child for which offence he was fined in the star-chamber twenty thousand pounds the marriage having been declared null and void as the sister of hertford lady jane the only efficient witness was no more elizabeth was obdurate in her resentment to her unfortunate cousin and disregarded all her pathetic letters for pardon and pity kept her endurance apart from her husband and children till she was released by death after seven years of doleful captivity her real crime was being the sister of lady jane grey which queen mary had overlooked but elizabeth could not yet lady catherine was a protestant after elizabeth had relentlessly dispatched her hapless cousin to the tower she proceeded on her festive progress to smallbridge house in suffolk the seat of mr waldengrave a catholic gentleman who with his lady and some others had been committed to the tower for recusancy he was at that very time a prisoner there and there died on the first of the following september from thence she passed on to helmingham hall the fair abode of sir lionel ptolemaic then sheriff for norfolk and suffolk and honoured him by standing godmother to his heir and left the ebony lute inlaid with ivory and gems on which she was accustomed to play as a present for the mother of the babe this relic which has the royal initials e r is carefully preserved by the family and proudly exhibited among the treasures of helmingham hall it was a customary thing for a king or queen of England, to leave some trifling personal possession, as a memorial of the royal visit, at every mansion where majesty was entertained. Hence, so many embroidered gloves, fans, books of devotion, and other traditionary relics of this mighty queen, are shown in different old families, with whom she was a guest during her numerous progresses she returned through hertfordshire this year and revisited the abode of her childhood enfield house and on the twenty second of september came from enfield to london she was so numerously attended on her homeward route that from islington to london all the hedges and ditches were levelled to clear the way for her and such were the gladness and affection manifested by the loyal concourse of people who came to meet and welcome her that says the contemporary chronicler it was night ere she came over st giles in the fields before elizabeth left town on her late progress the widow queen of scots after the death of her consort francis the second of france sent her french minister Doiselle to ask her for a safe-conduct to pass into scotland either by sea or if compelled by indisposition or danger to land in england and travel without let or hindrance to her own realm it had been considered the height of inhumanity in that brutal monarch henry the eighth when he denied a like request which had been proposed to him in behalf of the bride of his nephew james the the beautiful mary of lorraine whom he had passionately desired for his own wife but that one lady should refuse so small an accommodation to another had certainly not been anticipated elizabeth however acted like the true daughter of henry the eighth on this occasion for though duizel presented the queen of scotland's request in writing she delivered her answer to him in the negative at a crowded court with a loud voice and angry countenance observing that the queen of scots should ask no favours till she had ratified the treaty of edinburgh when this discourtesy was reported to the youthful sovereign of scotland and dowager of france then only in her nineteenth year she sent for the english ambassador throckmorton and having in the first place to mark her own attention to the conventional forms observed even by hostile princes in their personal relations towards each other waved her hand as a signal to the company to withdraw out of hearing she addressed to him a truly queenly comment on the insult that had been offered to her on the part of his royal mistress my lord ambassador said she as i know not how far i may be transported by passion I will not have so many witnesses of mine infirmity, as the queen your mistress had, when she talked, not long since, with M. Dossel. There is nothing that doth more grieve me, than that I did so forget myself, as to have asked of her a favor, which I could well have done without. I came here, in defiance of the attempts made by her brother Edward, to prevent me, and, by the grace of God, I will return without her leave. It is well known that I have friends and allies, who have power to assist me, but I choose rather to be indebted to her friendship. If she choose, she may have me for a loving kinswoman and useful neighbor, for I am not going to practice against her with her subjects, as she has done with mine. Yet I know there be in her realm those, that like not of the present state of things. The queen says, I am young and lack experience. I confess I am younger than she is, yet I know how to carry myself lovingly and justly with my friends, and not to cast any word against her, which may be unworthy of a queen and a kinswoman. And by her permission, I am as much a queen as herself, and can carry my courage as high as she knows how to do. She hath heretofore assisted my subjects against me, and now that I am a widow, it may be thought strange that she would hinder me in returning to my own country." Mary then, in a few words, stated that the late king, her husband, had objected to ratify the treaty of Edinburgh, that while he lived, she was bound to act by his advice, and now her uncles had referred her to her own council, and the states of Scotland, for advice in a matter in which they, as peers of France, had no voice, and she was too young and inexperienced to decide of herself, even if it had been proper that she should do so throckmorton in reply adverted to the old offence of mary and her late husband having assumed the title and arms of england but rejoined the young queen with great naivete my late lord and father king henry and the king my late lord and husband would have it so i was then under their command as you know and since their death i have neither borne the arms nor used the style of england the attempt of Elizabeth to intercept and capture the youthful widow on her voyage to Scotland has been contested by some able writers of the present day, but it is certain that the traitors Lethington and Murray, counselled the English cabinet to that step. An English squadron was, at this critical juncture, sent into the North Sea, under pretext of protecting the fishers from pirates, and Cecil, in his letter to Sussex, after stating the fact, significantly observed i think they will be sorry to see her pass the royal voyager passed the english ships in safety under the cover of the thick fog but they captured one vessel in which was the young earl of eglinton and carried him into an english port on finding their mistake they relinquished the prize and apologized for the blunder they had committed safe-conduct having been peremptorily denied to mary by elizabeth it was impossible for her to place any other construction on the seizure of one of her convoy than the very natural one she did elizabeth however without waiting to be accused proceeded to justify herself from so unkind an imputation in a formal letter to her royal kinswoman in which she says it seemeth that report hath been made to you that we had sent out our admiral with our fleet to impede your passage your servants know how false this is we have, only at the desire of the King of Spain, sent two or three small barks to sea, in pursuit of certain Scotch pirates." The young Queen of Scotland accepted the explanation with great courtesy, and though perfectly aware of the intrigues that had been, and continued to be, practiced against her in her own court by Elizabeth, she pursued an amicable and conciliatory policy towards her, entered into a friendly correspondence, and expressed the greatest desire for a personal interview mary's youngest uncle the grand prior of france who had accompanied her to scotland a bold military ecclesiastic of the class of walter Scott's brian de bois gilbert asked and obtained leave to visit the court of england on his return to france he was a victorious admiral and was commander-in-chief of the french navy and being the handsomest and the most audacious of his handsome and warlike race probably felt no alarm at the possibility of being detained by the maiden queen he was in fact the sort of paladin likely to captivate elizabeth who became animated with a livelier spirit of coquetry than usual at the sight of him and soon treated him with great familiarity i have often heard the queen of england address him thus says Brantome ah mon prieur i love you much but i hate that brother Geese of yours who tore from me my town of calais he danced more than once with her for she danced much all sorts of dances the testimony of an eye-witness says a modern french biographer can never be useless or devoid of interest when like the pigeon la fontaine he can truly say je t'ai la t'ai les shoes, ma such was the testimony of the chivalrous biographer brantome who with more than a hundred other gentlemen of rank in attendance on the grand prior and constable of france were guests at the courts of england and france and saw and spoke to both the island queens when in the height of their beauty and prosperity next to female dress a frenchman is the most sedulous critic on female beauty and surely brantome bears witness that at twenty-seven elizabeth possessed a considerable share of personal charms this queen gave us all one evening says he a supper in a grand room hung round with tapestry representing the parable of the ten virgins of the evangelists when the banquet was done there came in a ballet of her maids of honour whom she had dressed and ordained to represent the same virgins some of them had their lamps burning and full of oil and some of them carried lamps which were empty but all their lamps were silver, most exquisitely chased and wrought, and the ladies were very pretty, well-behaved, and very well-dressed. They came in the course of the ballet, and prayed us French to dance with them, and even prevailed on the queen to dance, which she did with much grace, and right royal majesty, for she possessed then no little beauty and elegance. She told the constable of France, that of all the monarchs of the earth, she had had the greatest wish to behold his late master king henry the second on account of his warlike renown he had sent me word pursued she that we should meet very soon and i had commanded my galleys to be made ready to pass to france for the express purpose of seeing him the constable replied madame i am certain you would have been well pleased with him if you had seen him for his temper and tastes would have suited yours and he would have been charmed with your pleasant manners and lively humour he would have given you an honourable welcome and very good cheer there are at present alive besides the constable continues Brantome, monsieur de guiche monsieur de castenot Languedoc, and monsieur de belloise besides myself who heard queen elizabeth speak thus and we all right well remember her as she was then it has been customary for the learned chroniclers of Elizabeth's life and reign, from Camden downwards, to diverge at this period of her annals into the affairs of Scotland, and for the succeeding seven years, to follow the fortunes of the ill-fated Mary Stuart, rather than those of our mighty Tudor Queen, who is certainly a character of sufficient importance, to occupy at all times, the foreground of her own history. It is, however requisite to point out the first germ of the personal ill-will so long nourished by elizabeth against mary this seems to have arisen from the evil report brought by mrs sandys elizabeth's former maid of honour when she returned from france at the accession of her royal mistress the exile of this lady has already been mentioned as she was forced from elizabeth's service on account of her zeal for the protestant religion it was not very probable that she would be admitted to the confidence of mary stuart who was then queen consort of france yet mrs sandys affirmed that queen elizabeth was never mentioned by mary without scorn and contempt such was the beginning of that hatred which never diminished while the troubled existence of mary stuart continued elizabeth was too deeply skilled in the regnal science not to be aware that a country is never so sure of enjoying the blessings of peace as when prepared for war and therefore her principal care was bestowed in providing her realm with the means of defence gunpowder was first manufactured by her orders and encouragement in england which all her predecessors had contented themselves with purchasing abroad she sent for engineers furnished regular arsenals in all fortified towns along the coast and the scottish borders increased the garrison of berwick and caused a fort to be built on the banks of the medway near upnor where the ships should ride in shelter and increased the wages of the mariners and soldiers to encourage them to serve her well she not only caused ships of war to be built for the increase of her navy but she encouraged the wealthy inhabitants of seaports to emulate her example so that, instead of hiring, as her father and others of her predecessors had done, ships from the Hans towns and Italian republics, she was, in the fourth year of her reign, able to put to sea a fleet with twenty thousand men at arms. Strangers called her the Queen of the Sea and the North Star. Her own subjects proudly styled her the restorer of naval glory. End of section 14